This is a long passage of uh, Scripture today, and uh, I'm going to read through it fairly quickly. We're starting in Revelation chapter 15 at verse 5 and going all the way through all of chapter 16. The, uh, if you remember, Revelation is written in images and symbols. And this is uh, a passage of Scripture that is just filled with those images and symbols. So I'm going to ask that you just listen very carefully, just like the early church would have when it was read to them, and try to let this, use your imagination and let this passage sort of fill your mind with the images that it brings forth and get some sense of how big and how complete this judgment is that we're going to be reading about. We'll start in Revelation chapter 15 at verse 5. Listen carefully as this is the word of God. After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls, full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. <coughs> and I heard the altar saying, <coughs> Excuse me. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast. Its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw it coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophets, three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he might not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done! There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island flew away, 
and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God for the plague of the hail, because the plague was so severe. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us your word and making us your people. As we look at this vision of judgment and the end of everything, overwhelm us as you overwhelmed John. Remind us of what this is all about. Teach us that even in the midst of judgment, you are holy and righteous and true. Do this for each of us this morning. In the powerful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. As you know, the Civil War changed history, not just for our country, but for all countries. And not just because it was fought for an ideal or for freedom or for rights, though there are revisionists who argue persuasively for each of those things. No, the Civil War changed history because the Civil War changed warfare. The American Civil War has been called the last Napoleonic War because it was the last major war in which Napoleonic tactics were used. For centuries, warring armies lined their men up in uh, rows and columns and marched them into battle up to a distance of about 30 yards, whereupon they would stop and shoot at each other. And it was just as gruesome as it sounds. But one of the major changes that first came into widespread use during the Civil War was the development of the rifled barrel. The weapon had been developed years earlier, but this was the first major war where it was employed as a standard weapon. Now, the development of grooves or rifling inside the barrel of a long gun, now called a rifle, meant that you could shorten the length of the... uh, the length of the gun, making it easier to carry. It also meant that you could switch from the ball, which was just a solid ball of metal, to bullets, because the rifled barrel spun the bullet, causing it to fly straighter, faster, and farther, allowing you to engage the enemy at greater distances with greater lethality. And using bullets, which contain their own gunpowder, allowed a foot soldier, now called a rifleman, to reload far more quickly, allowing him to shoot much more often. And marching a Napoleonic line of men into a battle where you expect to get 30 yards away, but now come under accurate and deadly fire at about 150 yards, turned this style of warfare, more often than not, into a slaughterhouse. And the incredible volume of dead and wounded men in the Civil War demonstrated that the long-held Napoleonic tactics no longer worked, particularly when you examine the the deadly carnage. I think of the battles of Fredericksburg or Gettysburg. These tactics no longer worked. But the rifled barrel wasn't the most significant change in warfare that came out of the American Civil War. The most significant change, I'm afraid, was the concept of total war. Total war is a military concept where the emphasis on the attack is not restricted to the enemy soldiers, but is expanded to the enemy country. And it's now considered justified to attack food production centers to deny food to the enemy. So crops were burned, and cattle was killed, and barns and buildings were destroyed, even and especially ones that were not yet uh, directly enveloped by the battle. It's now considered justified to attack supply lines and the means that those supply lines employed. So bridges were blown up, and railroads were cut off, denying the enemy the ability to resupply. And in fairly short order, it was discovered that you could accomplish all the above by simply burning down the whole city. For example, Atlanta. Of course, total war didn't just affect the enemy soldiers, but had an equal, if not greater, effect on the enemy population. To deny food to the army also meant denying food to the people. 
and the whole country suffered. General Sherman's march to the sea was such an effective example of total war, it contributed greatly to the end of the Civil War. He left such a wide a swath of destruction that all supplies from Texas, Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, and Georgia that were heading north to the Carolinas and Virginia were effectively cut off. And with the destruction of the Shenandoah Valley, which was the breadbasket of Virginia, the Confederate Army found itself in a position that it could no longer feed, clothe, or outfit its own soldiers. And by the time Confederate General Robert E. Lee surrendered to Union General Ulysses S. Grant at Appomattox, bringing an end to the American Civil War, Lee's forces were literally beginning to starve to death. There's ample evidence that men in the Confederate Army in those last days were so desperate for food that they would follow behind the wagon trains and the artillery batteries, uh, follow the horses, so they could pick the corn out of the horse dung. They were out of food, they were out of clothes, they were out of blankets, boots, and bullets. And General Lee knew that if he had to take his men through another hot summer, many would die from dehydration and heat exhaustion. And he knew if he had to take his men through another cold winter, many would die of exposure. The Confederate Army didn't lose solely because of battlefield tactics but much more so because of the strategy of total war that was employed against them, and which sadly has been employed in every major war since then everywhere in the world, which is why warfare brings such devastating uh, effects and such suffering to those countries where it's being fought. Because when war arrives, whether just or not, the people in those lands, innocent or not, suffer greatly and die horribly. Now, what does all this have to do with Revelation 16, which we just read? Simply this. In Revelation 16, God Almighty, the omnipotent judge, declares total war on sin and sinners. The bowls of God's wrath are poured out on those who are in rebellion against him. It is the last judgment. And one of the most difficult things to understand about the judgment of God against sin and sinners, which Todd uh, alluded to earlier, is that A, it's truly horrible and terrible in its effects. And two, it's truly righteous and just in its execution which means that God is going to bring total war against sin and sinners in such a way that it will be utterly devastating and we will praise him for it. And with that paradox in mind, let's take a look at what this is going to look like. We start by seeing in, in chapter 15, verse 5, we start by seeing that God's judgment will be complete. God's judgment will be complete. That's the first blank in your outline. After this, I looked, and the sanctuary of the ten of witness in heaven was open. Remember, seven is a number of completeness. Numbers are symbols in Revelation, not statistics. Listen to all the sevens that come up here. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. God's judgment will be complete. We have completed the interlude between the sounding of the seven trumpets and the pouring out of the seven bowls of God's wrath. Chapter 15, the shortest chapter in the book of Revelation, is the introduction to the last of this series of threes, uh, a series, three series of sevens, what I meant to say. Seals, trumpets, and bowls that we get here in the central part of Revelation. The site of the tabernacle, rather than the temple in John's vision, seems to be due to all the imagery here in Revelation 15 and 16 that come out of the Exodus, that period of 
history, Israel's history. The plagues, for example, recall the plagues of Egypt. The Song of Moses recalls the song uh, at that time after their redemption from Egypt. The entire section recalls the time of the tabernacle, not the temple. And so we should remember that today as Christians, we live in the wilderness. We're not yet in the promised land. This, this description is intended to emphasize the great glory of these heavenly beings as well as the purity of their work. They have come from God to execute his judgments upon the earth and they receive the seven golden bowls from the fourth, uh, four chief beings who are before the throne of God. In the Old Testament, you remember, when God uh, manifested himself to his people, his glory was often too much for them. It was more than they could bear. And so when the tabernacle and later the temple was consecrated with the glory of the Lord, it so filled those sanctuaries with smoke that men couldn't enter it. When Isaiah was given his vision of God in Isaiah 6, the foundations of the temple shook and the sanctuary was filled with smoke. And if you remember, Isaiah fell on his face before the glory of the Lord. These are visible demonstrations of the majesty of God and his unapproachableness. I don't know if that's a word, but I think it makes sense. His transcendence, the vast distance that separates God from man. And at the beginning of Revelation 15 and verse 1, John identified these as the last plagues. Before, when we saw the seals and the trumpets, it was a fraction of things were destroyed. Here the totality of creation is brought under judgment. According, therefore, according to the Bible, ultimately no one gets away with anything. I mean, do you think that your sense of justice is a product of evolution or a remnant of some sense of how this world was supposed to be? and how someday it will be again. Justice here in this life will never be fully satisfying. It will never be perfect. We work towards justice with the understanding that someday God will perfectly execute true justice. Which brings us to our next point is that God's judgment will be perfect. His judgment will be complete and his judgment will be perfect. Look at the beginning of verse uh, chapter um, 16, verse 1. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was. Normally we read that, and it says, Who is and who was and who is to come. That part's missing, because he's come. Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. Chapter 16 contains the account of the outpouring of the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. There's a number of parallels between this series of judgments and those of the seven trumpets, which we saw uh, all the way back in chapters 8 and 9. For example, in both series, the first four plagues are visited upon the earth, the sea, uh, inland waters, rivers and springs of waters, and heavenly bodies. And the fifth brings darkness and pain, the sixth hordes of invaders from the direction of the Euphrates River. Both series of judgments, the trumpets and the bowls, draw heavily for, uh, uh, for their symbolism uh, from the plagues that were visited on Egypt at the time of the Exodus. But there is an intensification in this last series of judgments. In the plagues of the seven trumpets, one-third of the earth was burned. One-third of the sea became blood. But here the destruction is total. What's more, in the case of the seven bulls, 
There's no interlude separating the sixth and seventh. There was with the seals, there was an interlude between the opening of the sixth seal and the seventh seal. It was with the sounding of the trumpets, there was an interlude between the sixth and seventh trumpets. The interlude seemed to provide sort of a last minute opportunity for people to repent before that last judgment came upon them. But that doesn't happen with the bowls. The seventh bowl immediately follows upon the sixth. And we can safely say, I think, that the bowls not only recapitulate these last series of judgments, seals and trumpets, but they carry this course of judgment forward to its end. One commentator said, with the coming of these last plagues, the hour for repentance has passed. And so the series hurries uninterrupted to its climax. God's justice is praised because it's both correct and perfect. God's judgment proceeds from his holiness, just as his angels proceed from his temple. The angel who speaks in verse 5 reminds us that the judgments we see the Lord visiting upon, uh, upon the earth are, in fact, mankind's just rewards. He says, it is what they deserve. We have to realize, and that's hard to swallow, we have to realize that the best human judicial system falls far short of the standard that God sets. That legal and moral are not synonymous terms. That polls and public opinion don't determine right and wrong, that that is only derived from God's word. But there's a lot about God's perfect judgment that's hard to understand and hard to accept Namely, God's judgment will be without mercy. Look at verses 8 through 11. God's judgment will be without mercy. It says, The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. See, back in chapter 13, we saw that the beast uh, arose from the sea and uttered blasphemies against God. Well, now we read that the followers of the beast do the same thing. <coughs> in other words, men have wholly taken on the character of the false God they follow. That's always the problem with false gods. That's always the problem with idolatry. We become like what we worship. Men become like the idols they serve. Small, lifeless, foolish. And just as false idols can't repent, so neither can the people who take after them. God has often, throughout the scriptures, used the threat of judgment to bring people to repentance. But final judgment brings ultimate condemnation. Suffering in and of itself is, it does not earn us any merit. Here we see how men suffer, and they wind up cursing God at the end of the world. I mean, we often think of mercy as inherently good, but it depends on where and on whom it's being exercised. God executes mercy perfectly. Come to God while mercy is being extended to you in Christ. Because mercy, justice, holiness, righteousness are all part of God's perfect character. And just as perfect mercy can be extended to you, so perfect judgment will go without mercy upon those who don't deserve it. And then jumping ahead to verse 15, we see there's a parenthetical comment there. And it tells us that God's judgment will be sudden. God's judgment will be sudden. It says, behold, I am coming like a thief. 
Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. See, the gathering against the Lord and his kingdom will be a time of crisis for the saints as well. And so a word of warning is injected here uh, into the narrative. After all, it was Jesus himself who said, Matthew 24, he also said this in Luke, Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore you must also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. The Apostle Paul picked up that same thought about the second coming in his letters, 1 Thessalonians 5. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. It was also part of his message to the church in Sardis in Revelation 3. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. In other words, the faithful know what the world does not know. That the Lord is coming. And we don't know exactly what time that is, and therefore we should be alert and we should be ready. Because for the faithful, the coming of the Lord is a grand deliverance from the tragic situation into which the unbelieving world has plunged itself. This is actually the third of seven Beatitudes in the book of Revelations or blessings or places where it says blessed is the one or blessed is he scattered throughout the book of Revelation. And the point here of the believer keeping his clothes on, uh, keeping his clothes with him is to be ready in contrast to the man who sleeps and is caught naked when he's surprised in the middle of the night. We have to be ready to stand before God at any time. And since our own righteousness, the Bible tells us, is his filthy rags, I think this is a clear reference to being clothed with the garments that Christ provides, which is the righteousness of Christ. And this is exactly what he told the church in Laodicea, again, in Revelation 3. He told them to receive the white garments that only he could give. There it says, I counsel to you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. You have to be ready. He's coming suddenly. Think of some time in your life where something happened suddenly that you weren't expecting. I remember one time, I won't give you the details because they're embarrassing. Um, But one time Joanne was busy doing something. She had her eyes closed and I sort of walked in and came right up to her waiting for her to finish and open her eyes. Except she didn't know I was there. And so when she finally opened her eyes, she jumped about a foot and let out this terrified scream. And I didn't mean to scare her or surprise her. It just happened that way. And I felt terrible. I was like, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to scare you. It's okay. It's just me. And I gave her a big hug and just held on while she found her heart and stuck it back in her body. Um, (laughs) But it's that kind of suddenness, unexpectedness that he's talking about, where uh, one minute you'll be concentrating on something, perhaps you'll be so focused, you got your eyes closed, and then the next moment you open your eyes and Christ will have come back, and everyone will see it, and everyone will know it, but not everyone will rejoice in it. Because for those who don't belong to him, at that moment, God's judgment will be severe. God's judgment will be severe. This brings us to the end of uh, chapter 16. Let me read that. I'm going to skip over verse 15. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs, For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done! And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake, such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. 
And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God for the plagues of the hail because the plague was so severe. There is a ton of stuff in here. We start with the Euphrates River, which marked the eastern boundary of the Roman Empire, beyond which lived uh, the much-feared Parthians, whose horsemen had conquered the lands from the Euphrates River all the way to the Indus River in what is now Pakistan, and had more than once threatened Rome with invasion from the east. And so in the worldview of the first century, hordes from the east represented the greatest military threat to peace and prosperity. And the sixth trumpet, if you remember, heralded the appearance of a great host of armed horsemen from the east who brought death to a third of mankind. Here it's not said what the kings of the east will cross the Euphrates to do. Would they make war on the people of the west? That is, would they be the instrument of Babylon's uh, doom? Which is, would they be the bringing about the destruction of a world system which will break apart through uh, division and insurrection, something that will be predicted in the next chapter? Or does this refer to the gathering of nations to make war on the Messiah and his host, as we'll read about in Revelation 19? We're not really sure who's going to get attacked here, the world or the Messiah and his followers. The text doesn't specifically tell us. We also see here the false trinity again, the dragon who we were told was Satan, the first beast of chapter 13, and the second beast of chapter 13, who here is referred to as the false prophet. The evil spirits are their agents for their uh, persuasive but deceptive uh, propaganda, convincing the world to offer itself to their program of rebellion against God. The great day of the Lord, uh, the great day of God Almighty is the grand finale of human history. It's the fulfillment of every previous day of the Lord, the consummation of the battle between the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of Christ. And here we get, finally, introduced one of the most famous of all biblical places. One of the famous of all biblical place names. One has entered the language of every nation as a synonym for catastrophe. Even here, there's a significant problem, though. Armageddon literally means Mount Megiddo. Har, H-A-R, means mountain. Megiddo is a place. But the problem is there's no such mountain. There is no Mount Megiddo. Megiddo is, in fact, in a, a valley. It's a plain that's part of the Valley of Jezreel that stretches between the Sea of Galilee and the Mediterranean Sea. It's a long valley. Uh, the Megiddo part of the uh, valley is about 14 miles by uh, 30 miles long. And it is, in fact, one of history's most famous battlefields. The Egyptian uh, Pharaoh fought there in 1468 B.C. If you remember from the book of Judges, Barak and Deborah fought there and vanquished the Canaanite king uh, at Megiddo in Judges chapter 5. Ahaziah was slain by Jehu, Josiah by the Egyptians uh, during Jeremiah's time. We read that in 2 Kings. And in modern times, the uh, British general Lord Allenby fought the Turks and was victorious in this valley in 1917. He's even known as Allenby of Megiddo. But Megiddo is not a mountain. It's a valley. So there's no really entirely satisfactory explanation for John's description of Megiddo as a mountain. So I think it's best to treat it as another symbol created by combining various... Uh, biblical ideas into one. So just as numbers can be symbols, names can be symbols. <coughs> Ezekiel prophesied an end times battle on the mountains of Israel in Ezekiel 38. After many days you will be mustered 
gathered together. In the latter years, you will go against the land that is restored from war, the land whose peoples were gathered from many peoples upon the mountains of Israel, which had been a continual waste. I think because Megiddo is a famous battlefield and remains that way today, Armageddon, the mountain of Megiddo, thus stands for the last battle. And as a symbol, it doesn't suggest that John's envisioning an actual battle between two armies at the end of history in northern Palestine. Indeed, the same battle in Revelation 14, we're told, is to be fought outside the city, meaning probably Jerusalem, perhaps Babylon or Rome, but none of those cities is near Megiddo, which means this is a good point to stop and say we have to be very careful in interpreting the text. It is so easy, and so many have done this, to read into the text what is not there. We call that eisegesis. As opposed to taking out of the text what is there, which we call exegesis. And we neither have the privilege or the authority to add stuff in, to try to fill in the gaps and then pass it off as scripture. And so it's here in chapter 16 that the popular approaches to the interpretation of the book of Revelation tend to get very interesting. Preachers of uh, this stripe hold audiences spellbound as they explain how these events are coming to pass right before our very eyes. Each of the plagues and turns represents some new development by which we can chart the progress of human history. The sea turning to blood is likely to be some sort of Red tide, environmental disaster, perhaps the effect on the sea caused by nuclear war. The scorching sun of the fourth plague will result, obviously, from the depleting of the ozone layer caused by global warming. And the armies from the east are some, depending on who you read, between 200 and 600 million soldiers, neither of which would fit in that valley, um, will come from the Orient to move into the area of a revived Roman Empire, obviously the European Union, because that kingdom will have been plunged into, plunged into darkness by the fifth bull. Perhaps it was a regional blackout caused again by environmental disaster or nuclear war. They'll cross the Euphrates on dry land because of the Russians' recent construction of a dam near the headwaters of the Euphrates. And of course, Armageddon armies coming from here and there to meet on the battlefield of a final world war. Of course, interpreters of this type take Armageddon to be the valley of Megiddo southwest of the Sea of Galilee. And so they go on as they have for two centuries now, corresponding revelation, as anyone can see, to the news that we read in our daily papers. And we associate this way of thinking about Revelation 16 with a system of biblical interpretation known as dispensationalism, with its penchant for thinking both that the end of history is upon us and that therefore we can read the signs in our newspapers and we can see the prophecies of Ezekiel and Daniel and Revelation coming to pass right before our eyes. This was and is the approach of Hal Lindsey, of many radio preachers, a long line of Bible teachers, many of them very good and godly men, including the authors of the very bad but immensely popular Left Behind series. And I've often said that I don't think we should interpret Revelation in that fashion. And I'm going to give you some reasons why. First, if you're going to read Revelation that way, John's original readers would have no idea what he's talking about. John's book for them would have become a secret code for which they were lacking the key to interpret the code. Most of what's predicted in the book uh, according to that view, would have been incomprehensible to the seven churches to whom the book was written. But very clearly, that's not what John wants. He intends his readers to know what he's talking about, and even more so to know exactly what it means. He's not describing a series of very highly specific and particular events in some long-distant future that they would have no way of understanding. He's describing the course of history from their time until the second coming of Christ in a way that helped them understand the meaning of that history and their place in it. So the first reason I don't like it is because it made no sense in the first century. 
Second reason is this way of interpreting Revelation is kind of a future newspaper giving us account of current events uh, coming true in our day, and it's always our day, mistakes the whole nature of apocalyptic literature, which is the literary genre in which Revelation is written. This uh, book is written with visions and symbols, giving us an account of history in very broad brushstrokes to reveal its central features and its overall meanings. It's a big-picture book. It's not a, a code book. It's a picture book. It's not a theological essay like Paul might have written. It's written in word pictures, symbols, like the rainbow or the water of baptism. And it's a magnificent account of the purpose of God in the world from the first century to its consummation. Third reason I don't agree is uh, we've been treated to these interpretations of Revelation now for about 200 years. It was created in the, 18th, uh, the 1800s, so it doesn't go way back. And the progress of events have proved them 100% wrong 100% of the time. Now, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, great English preacher back in the 1800s, when this was just first coming out, he bewailed the influence of halfpenny prophets all crying out as one man that Jesus will come back in 1866 or perhaps 1867. In regard to this way of reading Revelation, Spurgeon said, we never know what we'll hear next. And perhaps it is a mercy that these absurdities are revealed one at a time in order that we may be able to endure their stupidity without dying of amazement. Apparently, he could get away with all kinds of stuff. Fact is, they've been wrong over and over and over and over again, completely wrong. And what they said is so clear is not, in fact, the meaning of this text at all. Jesus didn't come in their time, and he hasn't come yet. And newspaper exegesis is interesting because it excites us to think that we can see specific biblical prophecy unfolding before our eyes. But the problem with newspaper exegesis is the news continues to change. And yesterday's understanding of Revelation 16 will have to change with it. And what may be true 100 years from now, none of us has any idea. We can't imagine it. We have no clue. And reading Revelation this way, you get an endless number of predictions made by authors and personalities over the last generation that this political development would happen or that this war will reshape the political landscape to conform to the picture we find in Revelation, and so on and so forth, and they've left a trail of dismal failure. Nothing has happened as we were told it would. Quite frankly, it's nothing less than embarrassing. It gives people the, the idea that the Bible is a crock and that Christians are just as nuts as those who think Nostradamus predicted every event in the 20th century. But we have to answer the question, so what would those first readers uh, in the first century, those seven churches, what would they gather from Revelation 16 and the account of the seven bowls of God's wrath being poured out on the earth? Well, as before, with the seals and with the trumpets, John's vision adeptly or, uh, uh, adapts uh, very typical symbols of judgment drawn from biblical history, drawn from natural history to describe the doom that overtakes unbelieving mankind in a concentrated and final catastrophe at the end of history. And he's telling the saints, the victory will be ours. This judgment is coming upon those who follow the beast. It's not coming upon the church. And the images of John's vision, again, broad brush, uh, brush pictures of the essential futility of human life apart from God and the divine judgments imposed upon mankind because he refuses to acknowledge its creator and live according to his will. The judgments, as we read elsewhere in Scripture, come in many different forms. And that's true. Human pain comes not only from wars and not only from natural disasters, but as we know all too well in the 21st century, from the ways in which sin itself 
And the spirit of rebellion against God infects human life with every manner of spiritual disease and suffering. And lives are scorched and become covered with sores from within as well as from without. Sin is often the punishment for sin. And despair and futility and alienation and anger are often what darkens life. And it seems rather clear that we ought to read the bulls as repeating the history described in the trumpets. That is, the judgments of the Lord that fall on mankind throughout history between the Lord's first and second comings. A first century reader would gather from this chapter the same lessons that's being taught throughout the whole book. First, and I've listed these for you. The moral, spiritual, political system of this world is in opposition to God, organized by an unseen hand of the devil and remains opposed to the kingdom and people of God. That the evil kingdom stands under divine judgment and at last must be destroyed, however much difficulty it may cause us until that happens. That believers will be caught up in these judgments visited upon the earth simply because they're part of mankind. Yet they bear the mark of the Lord and they're saved from ultimate harm even though they live in a world being punished. Now, being saved from ultimate harm is talking about being saved spiritually, not necessarily physically. And then finally, it's our calling to remain alert, aware of his or her situation in the world, faithful to the Lord Jesus no matter what, and the confidence that faith and loyalty will be vindicated in God's perfect timing. That seems to me to be a much more sensible and faithful reading of chapter 16, staying true to its context rather than to see it as an elaborate account of future events, one following the other at some future time. However, I have to say, don't forget that here we see in no uncertain terms that God is wrathful. The wine of judgment is to be taken in by the objects of his wrath. If you're not a Christian here today, are you prepared to drink such a cup? Why should he not serve it to you? What in you commends you to God? We need to know the truth of our own condition. We may want to think of God as purely kind and merciful, but what if that's just a creature of our own imagination? What if the Bible is right? Isn't it good and kind of God to warn us and to provide us a means of redemption? After all, God's judgment can be averted. God's judgment can be averted. There is something particularly striking in this account of history and its consummation that I want us to notice. Of course, as Christians, we always look at unbelievers as potential believers. And we hope, because we love them, that they will come to faith in Christ just as we have. And we've seen people who seem, right here in this church, who seem to be unlikely candidates for faith, embrace the gospel, begin to follow Christ, and have rejoiced to witness an amazing transformation in their life. And no doubt on the strength of the teaching of all of the scriptures, we can believe that up to the very end of the age, people will be found realizing that they're sinners before a holy God and that the gospel offers them the forgiveness of their sins and that faith in Christ will lead to a renewal of their hearts and their lives according to the truth and they will be convicted of sin and led to repentance and gratefully confess Jesus Christ is Lord. And only God's spirit applying the gospel of God's grace can turn hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. But the bulls of God's wrath show us a moment in time when the Spirit's gentle wooing of men and women will be complete, and all the son's sheep will have been gathered into the flock, and the father's patience will have waited long enough. At some point in history, near, perhaps very near to its end, there will be the last convert, the last person to put faith and trust in Jesus and be saved. Perhaps for eternity to come, he or she will be famous in the new heavens and the new earth as the last convert. The last person ever to be saved, as Abel will be forever known as the first human being to enter heaven. All that is true, gloriously true. The gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. And it will continue to be so until the very end. 
And those who are victorious over the beast are those purchased by the blood of the Lamb whose song they sing. <coughs> they will depend on Christ alone and on Christ totally. And if you understand the truth of who God is, and you understand your sin and the wrath you deserve, in that context you understand the concept of a substitute and know why Jesus came to die. He came to drink the cup of God's wrath for us. The wrath of God can be difficult to grasp, but it's essential to comprehending both God and our own experience in this world. To understand the cross of Christ, you have to understand the wrath of God. We are left to ourselves, objects of God's wrath, but Christ has taken that cup on behalf of those who believe on him. I told you that to refer to the judgments as plagues reminds us of the plagues of Egypt, which there, as well as here, were assigned to the world of God's power and judgment and assigned to God's people of his mercy and deliverance. And these plagues are anticipation of eternal judgment, and they have for their purpose not only to punish wickedness, but to drive men to repentance and ultimately to lead them to Christ. And that's what you have to remember about judgment and wrath. One of its purposes is for us to have repentance and faith. Remember that. You need to pray, and we need to repent. Take a moment to do that, and I'll close. Join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, please forgive us for the times that we indict you with our anger. How fragile is our faith in your perfect goodness and your perfect power and your perfect wisdom. Strengthen our confidence that you are never worthy of our anger or any of our accusations. Make us humble. May we put our hands on our mouths in tragedy and feel the truth. The judge of all the earth will do right. Use these visions of revelation to change us into people who trust you no matter the circumstances. And we do so in the name of your son, Jesus, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.